What follows is the Rare Book School Lecture of 1990 by Martin Antonetti, of the Special Collections Librarian from Mills College, entitled Goodbye to All That, Education for the Book Arts. Good evening. The drill is a little bit different tonight, as you can see from the sheets of paper in the hallway. There's an informal exhibition that has been arranged for Rare Book School 1990. Those of you who were here last year know those of you who are here in any of the last three weeks of last year know uh, about such things because you saw a number of them then. I'll have more to say about that after Martin's lecture. And there will be the usual reception after the lecture tonight, and it will be in the hallway rather than in 523. Time for a change. Martin Antonetti was a student in the Rare Book Program here in 1982 and has been very much a part of our operations ever since. His talk tonight is called Goodbye to All That, a look at book arts education. It's a pleasure to welcome him back on this side of the microphone. I'm glad to be back on this side of the microphone, or I'm thankful to be here. Um, as you know, I was here on this side all last year while Terry was on sabbatical, and although I'm used to doing so, I assure you that tonight this lecture will contain no plugs for Rare Book School mugs or T-shirts, which can be purchased after the lecture down the hall in 512 for a reasonable fee. Could I have the lights, please? The clue to the identity of this character can be found in the uh, almost uh, can be found in the lower right of the slide. Very exciting indeed was the month of May at Mills College. I take care of the interesting collection of rare books and manuscripts at this small liberal arts college for women in California, and I also teach, or I taught, in the graduate book arts program the oldest advanced degree granting program in this field. If you had seen the newspaper, almost any newspaper, or the television during the first half of the month, you would know that a revolution of sorts took place at Mills. A student strike in response to a board of trustees decision that the 140-year-old women's college must begin admitting undergraduate men in 1991 an enormous amount of national publicity, not all of it sympathetic, especially as reported in some East Coast papers. The, the New York Times uh, once characterized the students as whining feminists. <laughs> Culminating two weeks later in the dr dramatic reversal of the trustee decision, a recognition of the differences in the way that women learn in an institutional setting an affirmation of the importance, really the necessity, of this type of liberal arts education, a significant victory for women. Oh. Is, it, is it in focus to you? It doesn't look in focus to me. Huh. This is a, an interesting slide at the um, reversal announcement. That the banner actually reads, Mills College for Women Again, and in this picture, you can see um, the ex-president of Mills, the ex-dean of students, and the ex-dean of faculty. President Metz, dean of students, dean of faculty. All casualties of this imbroglio. Well, I'm really proud to be able to report this to you. Even though all sectors of the college, faculty, staff, alums, and students, worked together to overturn the decision, it was the students themselves who organized the initiative, who closed down the campus, barricaded the buildings, jammed the phone lines, negotiated with the board, peaceful and constructive civil disobedience. They provided child care for each other. They cleaned up afterwards. They wrote thank you notes to supporters. And I'm proud because in front of an international audience, these students carried out a dignified action for positive change. 
just as they had learned to do at Mills College. This um, picture is so typical of the college. Here, the, the students are barricading. When I said they barricaded the, the buildings, they actually parked themselves in front of all the doors to, to the buildings on campus, all the buildings but the library, and um, entertained each other. So here they're being entertained by a quartet of their peers. Not so exhilarating was the recent graduate exhibition in the book arts. Book arts has been a part of the Mills curriculum since the early 1930s, when Rosalind Keep, professor of English and campus editor, set up the Eucalyptus Press in her home on campus. For a decade already, Albert Bender, Bay Area's legendary philanthropist, uh, that's Albert Bender in the center, the short one in the center, and some of his friends are uh, Frida Kahlo, whom you can recognize, and next to her, to the right, uh, fat man is uh, Diego Rivera. Photo was taken by Ansel Adams. For a decade already, Albert Bender, the Bay Area's legendary philanthropist, had been driving over from San Francisco, usually in the company of one of his friends, Ansel Adams, Diego Rivera, or the like, to visit Mills president, Aurelia Henry Reinhardt, and to make gifts of fine press books or early printing to the library, the old library at Mills. All this, plus the college's association with printers John Henry Nash and the Grabhorns, made Mills a center for the study of the book as an artifact 60 years ago. Here's the new library into which we moved in January. Each May, the second-year graduate students mount an exhibition of the books that they have created in two years of intensive studio work. And this year's was the swan song. The opening was a bittersweet occasion, mostly bitter, as friends and alums of the program gathered to reminisce about a program that seemed to hold so much promise. Last year, in 1989, our board of trustees forever taking aim at their feet, it seems, voted to abolish this program that had national notoriety, an endowment which paid for its operation, a surfeit of students in most years, enthusiastic, really enthusiastic community support, and decades of history. Why? Well, the answer is simple and has nothing at all to do with the merits or failings of the program itself. We had become an unfortunate political football in a power struggle between the faculty and the board. We took the fall, and that was that. I'd like the lights, please. But do you think that the same fate would have befallen the creative writing program or the interdisciplinary computer science program? whereas these latter are pretty much universally considered to be legitimate academic pursuits, which are secure features of the curriculum, book arts certainly is not. In institutions all over the country, book arts programs suffer from, among other things, the perception that they are poorly defined, lacking in intellectual vigor, geared toward hobbyists, trendy. Any heat generated by the closing of one of these programs dissipates quickly. And it's hard to imagine that an institution would suffer any censure for letting one die quietly. For the whole idea of a graduate program in book arts in a college or university carries with it all sorts of problems, theoretical, pedagogical, and financial. They simply don't fit into the administrative structures of most institutions or seem worth the effort to maintain them. The demise of our program this year and the melancholy frame of mind that doing certain things and then realizing that you're doing them for the last time puts you in has given rise to a number of reflections on the methods and results of book arts education in this country today, which I'd like to share with you. Mills used to be a leader in this field, but even though we still will be offering all of the or most of the courses that we used to offer, but no degree, our new role, our, our, now our role will certainly change. 
It seems as though this is a good time to take a hard look, as they say, at the whole field and the issues which I think threaten its future. In the coming years, other programs may meet the same fate, and this may be okay, but those that survive certainly won't be worth having unless their directors can come to terms with these issues. I'd better make a little uh, disclaimer at this point in talking about book arts programs. I'm referring to those which teach contemporary letterpress printing, and that seems to be the, the bottom line or the least common, de no, least common denominator for these programs. Uh, book binding, paper making, um, graphic design, sometimes the history of the book. I must say emphatically that I am not, uh, by inference, including Columbia School of Library Service in this discussion, so please don't read that into what follows. In 1985, Joan Lyons, coordinator of the Visual Studies Workshop in Rochester, wrote that the book arts is here to stay. Such utterances are peppered throughout the, li the literature of book arts, and much critical discussion of book arts activities since then has remained on the same self-congratulatory plateau, infused with the, the rhetoric of bubbly excitement. Often, the tone is proselytizing. In an effort to garner wide public support and interest, book arts apologists have defined the field in the broadest and most ambiguous way, embracing many possible approaches, attempting to be all things to all people. Since Walter Hamady's catalytic exhibition, Breaking the Bindings, proclaimed in 1983 that it was time to take a fresh look at what the book can be, and to review traditional definitions we had perhaps too complacently accepted. The definition of what we now call the book, uh, signifying a whole constellation of artifacts, has become quite nebulous and open to all sorts of personal interpretation. We have been fond of saying that the book can be anything the bookmaker makes. And you are a bookmaker, if what, you call, if what you make, you call a book. But by formulating the dialogue this way, book arts apologists themselves may in fact have created a situation that is now causing serious pedagogical problems in the university. The ambiguity surrounding book arts, originally, as I say, intentional, has become institutionalized. Let me hasten to add that I don't think that the ambiguity itself is necessarily the problem. In fact, I realize that a certain amount of ambiguity may be necessary for art. However, it has happened over and over again in the past that when unstructured movements spawned in the creative realm enter the academy, they often either lithify or vaporize. And book arts, I think, is in danger of vaporizing. Jeffrey Abt, in his preface to the 1986 exhibition catalog, The Book Made Art, has issued the type of come all ye that I referred to a moment ago. He says, one could argue that the book, as a means for innovations in the transmission of knowledge, has come to an end. Without arguing the underlying and erroneous premise here that the book was ever a means for innovation in the transmission of knowledge. The book has always been the means of transmitting knowledge, but any, any in innovation that has resulted has been due to the knowledge, not the container. I would highlight the invitation to innovation, standard rhetoric. And since we as a nation embrace innovation and crave novelty, this invitation has been sown on fertile ground for book arts has indeed developed a considerable following. Of course, we're not talking about large numbers, yet, perhaps, but each year sees an increase in programs, uh, sees an increase in enrollments across the country and the birth of new programs. Last year, in the Bay Area alone, there were three, at San Francisco State, at New College, and at Cal State Hayward. Uh, well, three were added and one was subtracted, so net gain of two in the Bay Area. The doors are wide open, 
and many of the faithful have taken their seats. I need the lights off again, please. Rather than a church, though, the model I would use to describe the book arts today is the spectrum, a very wide spectrum with two poles far apart and manifestations along every point in between. On one end of the spectrum, on one end of the spectrum, you have traditional fine printing in what I suppose you might call the Kelmscott or the William Morris tradition in which emphasis is placed on perpetuating the received canons of design and on the excellence of technique and materials. It is also the book in the service of great literature. The point of all the effort is to serve the text. This approach may remind you of a certain philosophy of craft which is characterized by Beatrice Ward's crystal goblet, calculated to reveal rather than to hide the beautiful thing which it was meant to contain. Those who refer to themselves as bibliophiles um, in the traditional sense may be most comfortable at this end of the spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum, but still in the realm of book arts, we have conceptual bookworks a category of conceptual art. Conceptual art in general is anti-form and concerned with process, not product. It is energy, refocusing perception and rearranging experience. It recognizes ideas, not objects. Bookworks, conceptual bookworks, refer to the idea of the book primarily to the idea of the book primarily, and to the form only incidentally. That book works are anti-form means that they deny the value of the art object, which in turn eliminates any preoccupation with style, quality, and permanence, things which traditional bibliophiles are very preoccupied with. Book works have an important role in the conceptual art movement because they can document transient process. They can contain the concept. Also, they are movable, exhibitable, whereas often the process, the concept, is not. Even though book works do have physical form, they in fact derive their primary meaning of embodiments of philosophical concepts. Their affinity for the ideational over the visual is suggestive of and derived from Plato and his universal ideas. Except for the documentary aspect, book works are wholly uninterested in what we, would call, what we, what we ordinarily would call content. In fact, discussion of text in this context is meaningless. An example is Ian Burns' Xerox book from 1968. A blank white sheet was photocopied. Then a photocopy, then the photocopy was photocopied. <coughs> then the second used to make a third, and so on. This was done 100 times, and then all the sheets bound together. To the artist, the Xerox book is not a work of art in its own right. It has value only as a documentation of the process of creating it. Also, Ed Rocher's Sunset Strip is only a record of his drive down Sunset Strip, a document of points along the way, a document of points along the way, the drive itself, and Rocher's experience of, of it was the work of art, not the book. Book works like this have meaning despite whether they are ever read or looked at. And between these two poles, the poles of traditional fine printing and conceptual book works, 
there is a broad range of activities that combine elements from both extremes in varying degrees and for varying purposes, which, which have recognizable lives of their own. This is Karen Heft's River of Passing, 1987. This subgenre, this range, is now commonly called artists' books, and it inhabits this hazy area somewhere in between. Hazy and poorly defined, maybe, but this is certainly the most exciting laboratory in book arts today, loaded with possibility. For in this fertile middle ground, visual images and literary text confront each other in a new way and demand an entirely different type of response from the reader. In artists' books, language and image are used and juxtaposed in a way that extends, enhances the meanings of both. Here, conceptual ideas inform the traditional object. Francis Butler, a Bay Area book artist and designer who is also quite familiar with the history of the book, and this is uh, her occult psychogenic misfeasance, 1984, I think, color Xerox, acetate, and chrome rings. Sorry. Frances Butler says she is exploring the communicative possibilities of the tactile elements of the book, paper, binding, printing, and the incorporation of non-traditional materials into the book form. Artists' books are recombinative, not reductive. They take as raw materials features from both ends of the book art spectrum and realign them. Each artist's book is a crucible where a new synthesis of sensibilities is forged. For some artists, the book form is an organizing structure inasmuch as it is a sequence of spaces, a sequence of moments, as Ulysses Carrion calls it. But what this sequence is filled with does depend on its position on the spectrum. It may be filled with image or with language or with images of language. That is, uh, and this, by the way, is a Caldevi Press book from 1984. That is, some artists' books are more like fine printing. Others are more like conceptual art. But they are all artists' books inasmuch as they combine the traditions and assumptions of both and as they require a deeper level of participation from the reader. Uh, Bruce Schnabel's Triangle Book Series. See, Bruce Schnabel would justify his inclusion in the, this range of artists' book because he says his books do have text. The text is not uh, literary, but it is visual. Oh, sorry. And that his objects do have sequence which makes them books. I mean, you can move these in many different ways, as you can see. So, I have described in a little detail both ends of the book art spectrum and a point in between, or I should say a range in between. I'm trying to give you an idea of the extraordinary gamut of activities that academic programs must deal with. I hope I'm not making any value judgments about what is valid or what should or should not exist in the world of book arts, this is certainly not my intention. I'm simply cataloging the variety of life forms we find here. But when thinking about these different taxonomies, especially when thinking about them in academic terms, within an institutional framework, for training purposes, what is most important to keep in mind are not the differences in the physical forms of the end products, but rather differences even more profound and fundamental systemic differences. Both extremes and every point in between possess a variant genetic makeup, if you will, and bring with them their own set of underlying assumptions, assumptions of 
theoretical approach, historical antecedents, gender specificity, justification, vocabulary, evaluative standards, audience, and pedagogical requirements. The point I would like to make is that up till now, book arts programs which teach this broad spectrum have failed to take into account all of these assumptions and the significance of their interplay. Either because they're daunted by the seeming, seemingly overwhelming complexity of the situation or because they haven't recognized them. Probably the latter, judging from the le level of critical dialogue, more enthusiastic than insightful, as I mentioned. The difficulty for book arts programs lies not only in the sheer multiplicity of assumptions that each approach carries with it, but that very often the assumptions of the various book arts are at, are at odds with one another. They are often exclusive. They are often antagonistic. Let's take a closer look at a few of these assumptions and see how they work or don't work together. One of the assumptions that I mentioned is historical antecedents. First, the fine printing end of the spectrum. Fine printing is a tradition that will be 100 years old next year if we use the founding of William Morris's Kelmscott Press as the birthday of the movement, as Colin Franklin does. Keep in mind, though, that Morris himself was heavily influenced by John Ruskin's On the Nature of Gothic, which first appeared as a chapter in his Stones of Venice in the early 1850s, and which was later published separately, including once by Morris himself in 1892. This is young Morris. In the preface to the Kelmscott edition, Morris expressed his debt to Ruskinian aesthetics. Quote, in future days, this work, I mean, he's referring to uh, Nature of Gothic, this work will be considered as one of the very few necessary and inevitable utterances of the century. To some of us, when we first read it, now many years ago, it seemed to point out a new road on which the world should travel. And we can still see no other way out of the folly and degradation of civilization. For the lesson which Ruskin here teaches us is that art is the expression of man's pleasure in labor. It was, of course, Ruskin's highly romanticized view of the later Middle Ages, a kinder, gentler England that so infected Morris's imagination. Morris was looking back through Ruskin to merry old England Quintessentially a man of his own time, Morris epitomized Victorian sensibilities, and he had nothing but loathing for what the future would probably bring. We should see him as putting a, a grand cap on the Victorian era. Even though he did revolutionize printing, in a certain sense, he really didn't beget a movement. He ended one. So powerful his influence, though, that after nearly 100 years, it is still ending. Conceptual book works on the other end of the spectrum, this is Hannah Darbovin's January 23, 1968, are by comparison a relatively new development. The notion of anti-form as it applied to book objects grew out of the conceptual art movement of the 1960s. I should mention, however, that the conceptual artists of this period felt themselves working toward completing a break with mainstream aesthetics that had been initiated by the Dadaists, and in particular by Marcel Duchamp. This is Duchamp in 1917. He rejected the idea of precious and stylish artworks commodities for the benefit of museums and status seekers. He thumbed his nose at the art establishment with such ready-made works as Bicycle Wheel, 1913, and Fountain, 1917, works which are characterized in his words by, quote, visual indifference and at the same time 
total absence of good taste. <laughs> As I mentioned, the need for documentation dictated that conceptual artists discover and transform the book. But, however, parenthetically I should mention that their even more recent discovery and transformation of another documentary medium, video, may have even more interesting possibilities and implications for conceptual bookwork. Artists' books, that hazy, ill-defined region in the center, draws heavily from both traditions, but also has historical antecedents of its own. Think, think of avant-garde books from the teens and 20s, Italian futurists, uh, this is Marinetti, in one of his more casual poses, <laughs> constructivists, Russian cubo-futurists and the like, artists and writers who rejected formalist and academic art, who were excited by the possibilities of the new technology. They were excited by the possibilities of it, which Morris hated, and who tried to break the barriers between artistic fields, visual art, literature, performance, music. In their books, we see the first real attempt at collaboration. Their visual artists were not at all interested in illustrating texts, like Burne Jones was content to do with Chaucer, for example. On the other hand, they sought to project the text into a chromatic, almost tactile dimension. Uh, this is um, Mayakovsky's For the Voice, designed by Elizitsky. These books were often done by people who spent every day for long periods of time in each other's company. They were working together toward a fusion of artistic disciplines, and these books were one of the results. I'll, I also want to make another parenthetical remark that you notice that yet uh, up to this point I haven't shown any slides of French livre d'artiste of this type. This is... Um, of its metamorphosis illustrated by Picasso. Purposely, for these, even though billed as such, are often not collaborations at all, but are orchestrations, orchestrations of the efforts of writers, artists, and bookbinders by market-minded publishers. Often the actual makers of these books have never met and are in fact at a distance geographical or temporal, trying to outdo one another in splendor and showiness. Despite their style, they have much more in common with objects of virtue and traditional fine printing in the William Morris sense than um, with artists' books as I've defined them, even though they may in fact be illustrated by artists. Uh, by the way, for an interesting new look at this phenomenon, see Pierre Bérez's article, his recent article in the latest issue of Bulletin du Bibliophile, an English translation of which is forthcoming in fine print. So, from a review of the historical antecedents of contemporary fine printing, of, contemporary, of, of conceptual book works, and of artists' books, we get the sense of a field made up of wildly diverging aesthetic principles and methods. We sense, too, that these antecedents were themselves antipathetic for most of the 20th century, and decades ago grew up in reaction to one another. The staff of the Kelmscott Press. Another one of the assumptions that I mentioned that we must keep in mind is gender specificity. The printing trade has always been dominated by men, and so we would expect that, especially in the early years, the fine press movement would also be. The only woman there is Mae Morris. Men still do the majority of work performed today according to William Morris Kelmscott standards, but since the 1970s, many more women have taken up letterpress printing. Artists' books, on the other hand, 
seem to be the special province of women. This is Janet Zweig's 1981 Emotional Responses, a found book. These are found objects. As Pamela Zweil Burke points out in her introduction to the exhibition catalog, Women's Autobiographical Artists' Books, certain features of artists' books are very appealing to contemporary women artists. Art can be small scale. Art can be personal, private. Art can be experiential, ephemeral, mass multiple. Art can be concerned with social issues. Art can exist outside a museum or gallery. Art can be craft. Art can be collaborative. This is Kathy Churchill's lead and latex book from 1988. Kathy Churchill is a Mills graduate student. Clearly, any and all of these stipulations that I mentioned dovetail very nicely with our understanding of artists' books. Women's art since the 60s has been, to a large degree, autobiographical and diaristic. Book arts, and performance art too, serve these two impulses very well indeed, perhaps better than the traditional fine arts of painting, sculpture, and printmaking. This is another reason, by the way, why Mills was such a good home for book arts. For the most part, the dominant figures in the area of purely conceptual book works have tended to be men, and I cannot tell you why this should be so. Can we have the lights, please? Another one of the assumptions that I mentioned is justification. Michael Gullick, printer, calligrapher, bookbinder, etc., and quondam instructor at Mills College and Rare Book School, has commented that book arts programs may be doing a decent job in teaching students what to do but they fail utterly when it comes to teaching them why they're doing it. In the past, artists' books, whether they were done by surrealists, futurists, or Dadaists, fine press books, and conceptual book, book works were created in response to their own intellectually formulated aesthetics. The books or book objects arose from their particular ideologies from the particular ideologies I described a moment ago, and they were thus anchored to a theoretical substructure. Today, there seems to be renewed interest in these book-related objects and activities, but why? For the old reasons? Or are the book arts today responding to the contemporary artist, uh, intellectual or artistic climate? When I had money in the last few years, I bought early 20th century avant-garde books. I shared them enthusiastically, well, I was I when I mean I as a curator. I shared them enthusiastically with students, and soon much of their work looked disconcertingly Lizitsky-esque. <laughs> the work of Walter Hamady's students, and, and I don't mean to pick on Walter Hamady, he's, this is not an isolated case, but the work of his students is also often taken to task for too closely resembling the work of the master. We haven't yet developed a coherent rationale for book arts. And maybe that is not possible, given the differences in ideology that we would be trying to reconcile. But unless we give students some ideology, some justification, and until we stop concentrating on style and technique, they will never find their own voices they will continue to pastiche artistic movements of the past or simply imitate their instructors. A theoretical substructure is necessary to combat the superficiality that is evidenced in much contemporary bookwork. Another assumption is vocabulary. The problem here is apparent right off. No one in the field can agree on the definition of book. 
Beyond that, we are now at the end of a system of traditions that includes per personalities as diverse as Ruskin, Duchamp, Marinetti, Beatrice Ward, and Alastair Johnston, and that includes movements as irreconcilable as arts and crafts, constructivism, fluxus, and the women's art movement, each with its own vision, each with its own vocabulary. How differently they all interpret such basic concepts as reading, text, printing, craft. Another assumption is pedagogy. Is there a way to reconcile the distinct pedagogical systems that will be required to teach such a chimerical field in the university context? This is really the heart of my inquiry this evening. I suppose the ultimate question is, does the study of book arts as it is constituted today and as I've described it, have a place in the university curriculum? Please understand that I'm not asking whether it's serious or valuable enough to be included, but rather, can such a discipline as I have described actually be taught? If it does have a place in higher education, what type of experience should we strive to give our students? William Morris did not study book arts at Oxford, although he certainly was familiar with the history of the book. His printers, however, who were not the esthetes that Morris was, had come up through the printing trade, first as apprentices, then as journeymen. They were good printers. In fact, they were very good printers in as much as they were successful in carrying out Morris's demands, which challenged them in unusual ways. They learned their skill their, craft, their trade, not craft, over a lifetime of practice, on-the-job training that included the worst sort of drudgery and dog's body work as apprentices for years before they were even allowed to operate the press. Letterpress printing can still be a satisfying trade, although the market for it is tiny. What is the best way to learn it today in order to make a career out of it if you're so inclined? Well, if you're practical and serious, probably not by spending a few semesters in a graduate book arts program flailing about on a Vandercook in your late 20s or early 30s, which is the average age for most of our students. What will you do once you've graduated? Probably apprentice yourself to a working fine press at somewhere near minimum wage attempt to support your young family and pay off your graduate school debt. That hypothetical postulant would have been financially much better off had he or she um, gone into uh, become an apprentice from the very start and would know a great deal more about both the trade and the business end of it if he or she had spent two years as an apprentice rather than as a graduate student. Um, in the latter half of this century, fine press Fine press printers like Wesley Tanner and Pat Ray learned to print in vocational school. In their, in their cases, the same one, actually. Well, what about the conceptual end of the spectrum? Can we seriously think of developing a series of courses that would teach students to make conceptual bookworks? These courses would be analogous to courses in, or, or how-to courses in prayer or feeling good. <laughs> that is, if the impulse is not in you, no amount of practice is going to help. Conceptual art, like prayer and feeling good, is the natural expression of a state of mind or worldview. If you don't arrive at it spontaneously, the expression will be forced and dishonest. You will be wearing someone else's clothes, speaking with someone else's voice. Beyond that, there's, as I said, no such thing as style or technique in conceptual art. So what, in fact, is there to teach? A course on Plato, or better yet, Wittgenstein, would be, would be more to the point than the logical starting point, I would think. Well, I've written off both ends of the book art spectrum as being inappropriate to a graduate school of the type of uh, that we see at Mills, anyway. I've narrowed the focus a bit, leaving us with the somewhat amorphous area in the middle, the area of artists' books. 
As I said earlier, this is now the most interesting, the most exciting segment of the field today, where a number of technical, excuse me, of teachable techniques coincide. Printing, binding, paper making, writing, photography. Since there is no quest for the traditional book in the, tra uh, in the traditional sense, all these activities can be pursued in the experimental mode without the straight-jacketing effect of the old limitations. Gunnar Kaldavai of New York uses letterpress in his artist's books, and I think that even he would concede that he has not yet attained the perfection of his technique, but that's not the point. He has worked typographical magic of another sort with his press. He uses traditional methods, materials, and tools. He selects important texts. He collaborates with contemporary visual artists, and by recombining these with boldness and vision, he has created both books with extraordinary talismanic appeal. If students can work in this mode with no pretensions to concept or um, printing, on the other hand, they may, uh, excuse me, concept on the one hand and fine printing on the other hand, they may find that they're able to pull in new ways, unique, numinous. This is a hard, highly charged new endeavor, one in which pre-existent genres overlap, where several traditions can be drawn from. It is always true that the extension of one field into another is conducive to dramatic discovery. Here is where we should be focusing our efforts, for here we are developing a new aesthetic grammar and syntax. Book Arts is, after all, not the best name for this new endeavor, um, although I can't think of one, but in any case it shouldn't contain the B word. Nor do I think that graduate programs in the Book Arts are the most logical places to teach it. Undergraduate art departments are probably the best context. There, students will learn early on what we in graduate school have the most difficulty teaching the older ones, how to critique their own, and their peers work. But undergraduate art departments won't hear of anything called book arts. To them it has the same ring as needlepoint. And graduate programs are not a good idea because since there is very, very little training on the undergraduate level, most students come in completely cold, never having operated a press or sewn sheets into a binding. It is like a music school admitting on the strength of their desire to be musicians, students who have never played an instrument. And besides, what can we do in two short years? Better that they study book arts in a broader liberal arts undergraduate context where they can bring their literary and historical studies to bear and where they can be critiqued, critiqued by sculptors, writers, and philosophers where they will not be given the mistaken notion that book arts can be a career. I've tried to describe contemporary book arts as it is currently formulated, when it is formulated at all, as a too big umbrella that was originally defined in an ambiguous way in order to garner popular support, but which is in fact composed of very disparate sub-genres that are characterized by profound differences in theoretical approach, historical antecedents, gender specificity, justification, vocabulary, and so on. I've talked a little about how some of these things vary from genre to genre. The future of book arts, or whatever we choose to call it, and of education in this field will depend on how effectively we are able to recognize and reconcile these differences within the academic context, and on how well we are able to define or redefine the field, not only that our administrators and critics may understand us, but more importantly, that we may understand ourselves. Thank you. <laughs> T-shirts and mugs can be. Thank you, Martin. Those of you who were here last year
know that I spent one evening each week in talking about the development of the various programs with which uh, the School of Library Service has been associated as regards training for rare book librarianship and the antiquarian book trade. And I think all of you here are aware that the trustees of the university have voted to phase out the School of Library Service here at Columbia over the next several years. It remains very much a question whether the rare book programs are going to stay at Columbia, which they have been invited to do in a post-library school environment, or whether they will move elsewhere. The school will be at Columbia in more or less full operation for the next two years so that there is a considerable space in which to make new arrangements if new arrangements need to be made. The primary vehicle by which I will be communing my own thoughts, communicating my own thoughts on this subject will clearly be the Friends of the Book Arts Press newsletter. And many of you are Friends of the Book Arts Press. Those who are interested in the fortunes of these programs, I hope will become Friends of the Book Arts Press, which you can do tonight, as a matter of fact, in the Book Arts Press Notion Shop in uh, room 511. I draw to your attention that this is a matter of some consequence since most education for rare book librarianship in this country goes on in this room or down the hall. And the future of these programs, uh, to put it mildly, is very complicated in the next couple, and is going to be very complicated for the next couple of years. Some of my thoughts on this subject uh, are in the hallway outside. Uh, an informal exhibition on some of our activities over the past 20 years, divided into two exhibitions, one starting down at that end of the hall and continuing until about outside here on Bookhart's Press Lectures. Martin gave Bookhart's Press Lecture number 299. The uh, 300th lecture will be given next week by Felix Oyens and a celebration of the 300th lecture uh, will take place on uh, Tuesday with Paul Oscar Christeller speaking. The second exhibition outside some of you will have seen before, or part of it at least, it is a reprise of our self-observed, the photographic exhibition of activities of the Rare Book Program over again the past 20 years. That starts outside the hallway here and continues all the way down to the press room. The Book Arts Press Room is open, and uh, there is wine and food in it, those of you who want to take a look at it. And there is also a bar at the other end of the room for those who want to uh, look at the faculty mailboxes. 